Lawmakers finally unveiled the bill to fund the federal government, nearly three months after the initial deadline. With days left before Christmas, Democrats and Republicans have reached an omnibus agreement completed at 1.15 a.m. early this morning. When do they want to have the votes? Just in a matter of a couple of days. And this bill, more than 4,100 pages, will have very little time for public review, very little time for lawmakers themselves to read it before they are required to vote on whether or not to essentially pass this to avoid a government shutdown. Things should be done differently, more responsibly, with more foresight and more planning. This process has become normal here on Capitol Hill over the last uh, couple of decades, rolling everything into one massive bill, and it's caused a lot of frustration among members. The people who made this agreement are the leadership, the leaders on both sides in the House and the Senate, the senior appropriators on those key committees, but not the rank and file members and not most members of Congress who will essentially have to vote yes or no on this bill that they had little input in shaping. Now, ultimately, this bill is been unveiled, likely to pass, even though members may not know what's in it. As Speaker of the House, it is my great honor to preside over this sacred ritual of renewal as we gather under the dome of this temple of democracy. With partnership, but with purpose, I pass this great gavel of our government. Today on these steps, we offer this contract as a first step towards renewing American civilization. You know, my father always told me, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And now we need to finish strong for the American people. You're listening to Two Ring Circus, a podcast about Congress. This is episode seven, Boring But Important, part two. In this episode, we're going to describe the way the federal budget is written and examine how that process has evolved over the past half century as a result of conflicts, crises, and reform efforts. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller, from Portland State University in amazing and wonderful Portland, Oregon. The U.S. Constitution says little about the budgeting process. It requires that all appropriations be authorized by law, and it forbids Congress to appropriate money for the Army more than two years into the future. Other than that, as with most things, Congress itself has the power and the responsibility to work out its own rules and procedures. Bob Sharp interviews Dr. Jack Miller about the basics of the congressional budgeting process. Thanks for sitting down with me, Dr. Miller. Always a pleasure, Bob. What's on your mind today? You've used the two-ring circus metaphor in a number of different ways to describe Congress, the two chambers being two rings, the primary and general election system another two-ring system. Before we started recording today, you mentioned that the budget is yet another two-ring circus. Can you explain what you mean by that? Certainly. Most of the time we talk about the federal budget as though it were a singular thing, but there are actually two different budgets that make up each year's federal spending. One is the annual budget set by one-year appropriations bills. The other is the ongoing budget set by laws from the past, often very distant in the past that require the federal government to make certain expenditures whether present-day lawmakers want to or not. The difference between these two budgets is often referred to as discretionary versus mandatory spending. Mandatory spending is sometimes also called entitlements or entitlement spending. The budget battles we generally see and hear about concern annual discretionary spending, the money that Congress needs to allocate each year to fund certain programs. Discretionary spending makes up about a third of federal outlays each year, while mandatory spending, which includes interest on the national debt, makes up about two-thirds. So what lawmakers fight about each year is the smaller of the two budgets, the less pricey ring of the circus, if you will. Why aren't there fights over entitlement spending? 
Oh, there are fights over it, all right. Republicans routinely say they want to rein in entitlement spending, and various Republican presidents and presidential hopefuls say we need to reform the Social Security and Medicare systems to make them more fiscally responsible. But because these programs are funded by existing law, so-called entitlement reform would take a repeal or amendment to those laws, not just an annual must-pass appropriation bill. The usual structural obstacles to passing major legislation apply here, and the political obstacles are pretty significant too. While Republicans make a lot of noise about cutting entitlements, when it comes to voting to cut Social Security or Medicare, they just don't do it. Older voters who rely on these programs vote in the highest numbers of any demographic group, and cutting Social Security and Medicare is generally seen as certain political death, the so-called third rail of American politics. So the war on the mandatory budget is really more of a war of words than an actual budget battle. The must-pass appropriation bills, however, that's a different story. That's where all the fighting goes on. Why are the battles over these must-pass bills so fierce? Once again, there's the usual status quo orientation of Congress to take into account. Because it's so difficult to pass major legislation, particularly when it comes to altering or eliminating existing programs, policy battles get fought out as spending battles. Money is policy, in other words. Say you don't like how the Securities and Exchange Commission is crimping the financial industry with its regulations. In theory, you could pass a law eliminating this agency or curtailing its regulatory grant, but that's nearly impossible to do given the usual obstacles to legislation. But the SEC relies on annual funding to do its job. So if you can cut its budget, you can reduce its regulatory power without changing the statutes that underlie that power. This goes for basically every executive agency, except the few, like the Social Security Administration, that are funded by mandatory spending laws. So the budget is where policy battles are fought these days. Precisely. And because Congress currently uses annual appropriations bills instead of longer-term funding laws, these bills are must-pass, or portions of the government simply shut down. This must-pass nature makes the policy battles embedded in the funding battles particularly fierce, especially when there's a divided government. So is this battle over appropriation bills just a political free-for-all? It used to be, kind of. For much of American history, the appropriations process was carried out in a haphazard way, with the usual policy conflicts between the two chambers and between the executive and legislative branches impacting how federal spending was authorized. As with many things in Congress today, the process was reformed in the Watergate era with passage of the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974, more commonly known as the Budget Act. While there were various factors that led to the passage of this transformative law, one of the origins of this act was a showdown between President Nixon and the Democratic majority in Congress. Nixon frequently used a process known as impoundment, the withholding of appropriated funds from executive agencies, to advance policy priorities that differed from those of Congress. Impoundment is essentially a line item veto in practice, allowing the president to shrink, though never expand, the federal budget in specified areas. Other presidents had used impoundment from time to time, going all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, who first used it in 1801 to resist spending that had been authorized by the previous Federalist Party-controlled Congress that lost its majority in the election of 1800. President Nixon, however, used the power more broadly, setting up a showdown with Congress over spending priorities. When Congress sought to rationalize the budget process in 1974, it included a specific provision banning impoundment, ensuring that all appropriated funds would be released regardless of the president's wishes. The president could request a rescission of certain funds, but Congress wasn't obliged to vote on it. The Budget Act was passed over Nixon's veto in 1974, just before he resigned amid the Watergate scandal. In addition to banning impoundment, the act set up a regularized process for writing the appropriations bills needed to authorize federal spending. Can you tell me what that regularized process looks like? I could, but I'm actually going to outsource that job if you don't mind. The following segment, produced in 2017 by the American Association of the Advancement of Science, explains the basics of this process very clearly, with science-oriented examples that show how this process impacts specific policies on the ground and policy in general. The federal budget process is a total mystery to most people. It's complicated and lasts more than 18 months. But it's not that hard to understand the basics. 
Here's how it works in three steps. Step one, the White House releases a budget request. The president's budget is usually issued in February and contains a full set of funding proposals. Where do these come from? Almost a year before this, agencies like NIH or NASA must come up with their own initial budget plans. Before the White House can submit a budget to Congress, the agencies have to submit their budgets to the White House. The White House can hand out spending directives and negotiate with agencies before approving their final budgets. Does the president's budget matter? Only as much as Congress allows it to. As FDR once said, the president proposes and the Congress disposes. For example, President Obama regularly sought increases for NIH, but often failed to obtain them. On the other hand, Congress was willing to fund specific priorities like the Brain Initiative. Step two, the congressional budget. Once the White House has issued its budget request, Congress gets to work. One of the first things Congress is supposed to do is pass a budget resolution. Among other things, the budget resolution sets the overall limit on discretionary spending for the year. Discretionary spending is the part of the budget Congress has to allocate every year. This is really important for science because just about all federal research and development, or R&D funding, is contained in the discretionary budget. In general, as the discretionary budget goes, so goes R&D. Step three, congressional appropriations. Once there's a spending limit in place, legislators in Congress start work on appropriations bills, which provide actual funding. The spending limit matters here because it directly impacts how much Congress is able to spend in any given year. There are 12 spending bills in all, and science agencies are scattered throughout these 12 bills. What drives spending decisions? Certainly questions of national interest come into play, but the biggest concern for any legislator is what their constituents think. It's not a coincidence that some of the biggest supporters of science in Congress come from districts with national labs, universities, or high-tech industry. Each bill has to be amended and passed by both the House and the Senate, and once the differences between the two chambers are resolved, the bill goes to the President's desk for a signature. The federal fiscal year ends September 30th. If Congress can't finish their work on time, they have to pass a continuing resolution or risk a government shutdown. These are just the basics, but hopefully this has helped explain what can be a confusing process. For more in-depth information, please visit AAAS.org. The early process set up in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974 was great in theory, but in practice it didn't necessarily work precisely as designed. Very rarely were all 12 appropriations bills completed in time, that is by September 30th, to authorize money for the upcoming fiscal year beginning on October 1st. However, the overall process worked fairly well for a couple of decades, with the budget generally comprising a budget resolution passed in the spring, followed at some point by all 12 appropriations bills passing Congress and receiving the President's signature. As with other features of present-day congressional practice, the 1994 midterm election changed all that, inaugurating an era of threatened and actual government shutdowns that required tense, high-stakes negotiations between the president and congressional leaders. The Clinton administration and congressional Republicans, after the 1995-1996 shutdown, were able to negotiate successfully through the remainder of the 1990s, and the Bush administration largely avoided high-stakes showdowns. But after the 2010 midterm election that brought Republicans back to power in Congress, showdowns over the annual budget and raising the debt ceiling limit have become a common recurring feature of the budget process. It's gotten so bad that there has even been a government shutdown under unified government, with President Trump and the Republican Congress differing on funding for Trump's border wall, leading to a 35-day shutdown from December 22, 2018 to January 25, 2019, the longest shutdown in history. The following segment, produced in 2014, tracks the history of government shutdowns to that date, explaining why we have them and why they're more common and longer now. 
Did you know that the federal government shut down 17 times over the past 30 years? For the next few minutes, we'll take a look at the recent history of government shutdowns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Comcast Newsmakers. I'm Robert Tranum, and I'm joined by Scott Horsley, White House correspondent for NPR News. Scott, welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Robert. We, we of course, we remember the government shutdown in 1995 and 1996. Uh, I'm not sure people remember, if they're old enough to remember this, that over the past 30 years, there's been 17 government shutdowns. That's kind of an interesting history. If you go back in to the 60s and 70s, it was actually sort of a quaint uh, tradition now that when Congress couldn't agree on a spending bill to keep some government function running, uh, Congress just disagreed and the function kept running. We, we might not have had a spending authorization bill, but the thinking was, well, the lawmakers will work it out eventually, and the functions of government just continued uh, as normal until the last year of the Carter administration, and that's when his attorney general, Benjamin Civiletti, wrote a memo which basically said if Congress hasn't uh, sanctioned spending, spending must stop. Uh, uh, and that was sort of the beginning of what we now know as the real sure. government shutdown. Well, you, obviously, I'm not a, uh, a lawyer or, or even a legal historian, but I remember the Federalist Papers, and I think it was Federalist Paper number 54 that James Madison authored, and he said that Congress does have the power of the purse string. And if, in fact, government does not function, it's because of Congress not paying the bill, if you will. So I, I can see that point there. Uh, but most of the government shutdowns were only last, what, a couple of hours or maybe a day or so. Well, during the period when it was all taken very casually and things continued to function, uh, sometimes there would be a long period of time when there wouldn't be a formal authorization for spending. After Civiletti wrote his opinion, uh, and it, people kind of had to get serious and say, okay, a shutdown is for real, uh, they got a lot shorter. And throughout the 80s, most of the shutdowns lasted only a day or two, often over a weekend. Ah. When Monday morning came around, uh, there was a real incentive to get things done. Now, Civiletti actually wrote two opinions. The first one was very tough and said, uh, if there's no authorization, the, the All of government shuts down. has to shut down. But when he wrote that, he was really just talking about one agency, the Federal Trade Commission. Then there was a, another period where there wasn't spending authorization for a much broader swath of government. And he, as, uh, as one lawyer told me, when he felt the noose around his own neck, he decided to give sure. it some slack. And so the question becomes, he actually uh, loosened, if you will, some of the rules or, or his interpretation, if you will, the rules because of the, the question of whether it's essential or non-essential government employees. And so now we have this sort of hybrid shutdown where large sections of government are in fact shut down. Hundreds of thousands of workers For are... For example, the Park Service exactly. or, or NIH or something like that. But those functions that are deemed most critical continue. And Which would be Department of Defense, military workers, so forth. And, and that's right. And, and what that's really allowed to happen is for us to have a sort of extended stalemate. Imagine, if you will, if the government shutdown extended to the FAA controllers sure. and planes couldn't take And that's off. when the real pain, I believe, would probably be felt by the American people where there would be a big outrage. And the shutdown would last about five minutes. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> the question becomes, Scott, is whether or not uh, Americans really care uh, that the government shuts down from a historical perspective. Do you have any analysis? Here, here's the question is, is, are we creating this fiction where a lot of people can think, oh, the government shut down and it doesn't affect me because the part of the government that they're most dependent on sure. doesn't really shut down. Maybe we'd be better off if we went with Civiletti's original opinion and we said if there's no authorization, you really have to shut down and then people would realize what the government does. We have about 20 seconds left, Scott. Um, 
Do you believe, is Mr. Civilelli still around? Is he, I'm curious to know whether or not he uh, has taken a look at the other government shutdowns since his ruling he's, over he, the past 25, he's, 30 years. He's still around, although when I've tried to interview him on this subject, he's, uh, he's stayed mum. Very quickly, last question. Do you believe James Madison will be comfortable with all of the government shutdowns we've had over the last 30 years? I guess Madison would be on Social Security by now, so <laughs> as long as his check kept coming. Scott Horsley, NPR News, thank you for joining us. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Comcast Newsmakers. I'm Robert Trainum. Have a great day. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Budget showdowns have now been normalized, but is there anything we can do to fix this problem? After all, the Constitution does require that all money spent by the federal government be approved by law, and that means, as always, for every law, majorities in both houses of Congress and signature by the President. That's always going to be difficult, no matter how the process is set up. So it's not like there's an easy answer to fixing the budget process. Our British correspondent on American politics, Nigel Wilkerson, files this report on the challenges of fixing the federal budget process. We have only funded the government, Congress has only funded the government on time by the end of the fiscal year four times in the last 45 years since the 74 Budget Act was put in place. They've actually used 186 continuing resolutions. The process right now is not working very well. Since 1980, we've only had two budgets that have been completed on time. Every president since Ronald Reagan has said we need to take a look at um, the budgeting process. The budget process is broken. That much a lot of people agree about. We just heard one Republican and one Democratic senator saying essentially the same thing. So dissatisfaction with the budget process is bipartisan. What, however, can be done to fix the process? And can any reform proposal hope to make it across the finish line and become the new way Congress does its budget business? And more importantly, would it help at all? The process ought to be simpler. What's happened year after year in the Congress is the process is so complicated that even when the parties were working together reasonably well, they couldn't finish before the beginning of the next uh, fiscal year. So there are a couple of things you could do about that. One is to simplify the committee structure, which is always difficult. Another obvious thing is not to budget so often. Do it every other year. If we did it every other year, the Congress would have more time uh, to be deliberate about decisions and also more time to study what's working and what's not working and in uh, the budget and the tax code uh, and uh, come to decisions about uh, what to do. That's Alice Rivling of the Brookings Institute speaking in 2014. Reforming the committee structure is definitely challenging, and with the leadership continuing to maintain a chokehold over the legislative process, any work to improve the committee system and re-empower it to oversee the regular legislative process is likely to go nowhere. Ms. Rivling's other proposal, that Congress move to a two-year budget cycle, has received attention in Congress. In fact, in 2011, Democratic Senator Jean Shaheen and Republican Senator Johnny Isaacson introduced the Biennial Budget Appropriations Act. That was 12 years ago now, and this seemingly sensible idea has gone nowhere. But what if Congress were to take action on the Shaheen Isaacson proposal? For an opinion on whether or not this decidedly pedestrian reform, the biennial budget, would have any impact, I turned to Dr. Jack Miller of Portland State University. Yeah, I mean, a biennial budget would certainly give Congress more time to work out 12 full appropriation bills, and they are large and complex, so more time could be helpful. But the time crunch isn't the real reason why we're not getting budgets done on time. The fact is, budget battles are policy battles, policy by proxy of money, and policy battles are always fierce and divisive. Moving to a biennial budget doesn't change that fact. 
By extending the timeline, it's just creating more space for members of Congress to fight over their policy priorities as enshrined in dollar amounts. It would mean we might be facing potential government shutdowns only once every two years instead of every year, but that's hardly a serious benefit. I think that's one reason why we haven't seen movement towards a biennial budget and why we probably never will. But even if we did, big deal. That's the current state of affairs when it comes to fixing the budget process. Dr. Midler did say that a reduction in polarization and a return to using techniques such as earmarks and giving more power to committees to shape legislation could make it easier to craft bipartisan compromises on the federal budget. But he's not holding his breath, and he advises you not to hold your breath either. I'm Nigel Wilkerson, reporting from America. That's it for episode 6 of Two Ring Circus, Boring But Important Part 2. I hope it hasn't been too boring. Thank you to the American Association for the Advancement of Science for its budget process explainer, also to Comcast Newsmakers for its discussion of the history of government shutdowns, and a special thank you to Led Zeppelin for providing a not-boring, hard-driving soundtrack for this episode with their 1969 song, Communication Breakdown. In our next episode, we look at the regular legislative process and explore how a bill becomes a law but usually doesn't. Communication Breakdown might be an appropriate song for that episode as well. Until next time, here's more Led Zeppelin. Communication Breakdown!